Welcome to Curious and Quirky. We believe curious leaders change the world. Curious and Quirky is a LinkedIn live event with course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. This is a fast-paced, five-minute-per-speaker, oh yeah, take on what's hot in marketing, innovation, transformation, future of work, platform strategy, design, and agility. Brought to you by the course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Mary Abazia, your host for this month's Curious and Quirky session. With all of our sessions, we'll be discussing some of the most intriguing and insightful topics in the world of business um, with brilliant minds from Caltech and executive education. So if you have any questions or comments, we really would love to hear about them. So be sure to put them in that comments and there's a chat feature for anything you're asking or even just a good comment. Now, I have the honor of introducing you to our innovation guru and my friend, Brian Mattimore, who's going to talk to us about X something marking the spot. All right, Mary. Well, thank you. Yeah, I want to talk today about what's I think pretty widely considered the the worst name change in American history and global history. Um, of course, I'm talking about the Twitter to X change, right? Experts have estimated that you know the value has gone from 45 billion to about 15 billion, and, and of course, that's not only because of the name change, but the name change certainly didn't help. That was in April, and then of course they launched the new logo at the end of July, and they're both. A debacle, right? They're just ridiculously bad. Let me t- let me just talk about the rationale. There, there are kind of two reasons for the name change. One, they wanted to be, quote, the everything app, which is not a bad wish, right? But the, the strategy to change the name is not a good one. You can, you can expand into other arenas by A, creating a new name for a company, number one, or number two, just sort of leveraging your current name and expanding the definition of it, right? I mean, Weight Watchers is a good example of not doing it well. They changed Weight Watchers to WW because they wanted to be not just weight loss, but wellness. And people still call it Weight Watchers because that's what they know it is. And names, by the way, often move beyond descriptors to just a thing, right? So JetBlue was considered a terrible name when the innovators launched it. They thought it was a real a real compromise on their part, which is they just couldn't think of anything and they had to do it. And of course, now, if you ask mo- most people, they consider JetBlue a great name because it's gone beyond a description into a thing and filled in with meaning, right? So anyway, so on the X thing, you know, trying to broaden what they're offerings to an everything app was one of the rationales. So to do e-commerce, banking, et cetera. But boy, you know, to do banking, you need trust. And who's going to trust an X, right? You know, their CEO said it will transform the global town square. Okay. All right. So that's one wish or that's a business rationale for the name change. The other thing, frankly, is that when you have a, a founder who is, you know, sort of obsessed with a letter, you know, ego can get in the way, obviously. And that obsession, you know, it started actually with PayPal, the, you know, Confinity and XCOM. It was called XCOM before it turned into, into PayPal. And then, of course, we have SpaceX. And then I don't know if you know, but with his first wife, Elon Musk, named his son, I can't even say it. It's like XX. 
at EA-12, which is the son's name. It's like, are you, are you kidding me? So, you know, this obsession with the X, you know, in some ways that's, you know, entrepreneurs need to be obsessed, but it, it's gone beyond uh, rationale into a really bad thing. I thought it would just be fun when I did the research on this, the consumer research. I've got some quotes, and these came out when the logo was changed in late July, in, in, in late July from Twitter users. And one reporter said, X users, which I thought was such a cute play on words there, right? But here are four quotes Re reacting to the logo. They said, one person said, it looks like a CD strip club. Okay. Boy, if you're doing focus groups, this is probably not what you want, right? Uh, another one said, it's a tattoo parlor that's a front for money laundering. Okay. A third one was, it looks like a razor blade and a line of cocaine. All right. And finally, it looks like a depressing fascist dystopian society, like in the book 1984. I mean, this is a problem, right? <laughs> I mean, if you had done one set of groups, you would have known that this was not a smart thing to do. That's on the downside. On the plus side, you're walking away. I mean, positive side, you're walking from away from a name Twitter that's you know, cheerful and friendly and blue and emotional and chirping birds in spring and all the rest. It's emotionally reassuring. And you're a close walking away from that. It's crazy. And also, I don't know if anyone has ever walked away from the coining of a term, right? You're going to tweet or retweet, right? So they're walking away from that as well. I mean, oh my gosh. And the, the final part of this debacle is that, you know, Microsoft owns the X trademark for video game related things. Obviously, X back, X box, but also in uh, chat room for, for chat rooms. And then Meta or Facebook, which is a whole different naming story we won't get into, they hold the X trademark for online social networking services. So, oh my gosh, you know, not only was it a terrible thing, but they may have lawsuits as a result. So when I do innovation stuff, I always try to be somewhat positive. Let me just give you a few quick principles uh, of name changes and then some creative ways to get it new name. So our bias, because we've done a lot of naming work in, you know, the 23 years of Growth Engine, you know, we've named thousands of new products for testing, many of which make, made it to market, right? Uh, but for a company, our advice is always don't change the name unless you have to right? I mean, there has to be a really, really good reason to change it because you're walking away from equity. Now, this is a little different if the company is first starting out because you haven't built up equity. It's probably okay to change it then. But, you know, with 18 years of the equity with the with the Twitter name, what are, you, what are you crazy? You know, Esso, for instance, was changed to Exxon, right? In the 60s, 70s, whatever. They had to change it because of legal restrictions around the world. So they didn't have a choice. And, and again, the longer that you have a name, the less likely you should be to change it. And even if there's a debacle with the name, like Chipotle or Tylenol or whatever, your marketing people can build back the trust there. So what are some creative ways to get it a name? That's, that's I'll finish with this. We have found that, you know, the tyranny of word shows up when you're trying to name something. I mean, naming is really, really hard. I think it's in some ways one of the most difficult marketing challenges there is because you find you get a great name and then it's not available and on and on and on. So one trick or way into this is not go to words, but go to visuals and use visuals to prompt names. And that way you can get often you can get metaphorical concepts that are not obvious. So that's one recommendation. Another is, you know, you can sometimes sort of back into this by generating a tagline first instead of the name. You know, we were hired by the Lutheran Society of America to come up with a name, a new service that was 
sort of a subset of, of eBay where their members could donate things and then they would be sold and all that money would go to charity. And so we did tagline work and visual triggers and all the rest. And we came up with the name Trading Graces, which we think, oh my God, what a fantastic name, right? Ironically, the client called us up that night after they accepted that and said, hey, this is great. Do you have a tagline for the name? And of course, we had worked on taglines, but we didn't have one. And then we said, and he, and he said, I need it by tomorrow morning. <laughs> Oh, great. So anyway, so we uh, talked to him and said, well, what's the essence of what you're trying to say? And he said, well, one thing is we don't want people to feel like victim, right? We want, or, or less than, or, you know, people who have money and don't have money. We want everyone to feel equal because as humans, we're all, you know, we're all important on God's great earth here. And so anyway, the, 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 the tagline we came up with was because everybody has something to give, right? And it's like, you know, we can't do better than that, right? Come on. That, that's fantastic. Just another couple other thoughts quickly. Simple is good, you know, in a name, if you can get it. I mean, I remember we were naming a new international diet drink for Pepsi. And on day one of ideation, we came up with Pepsi Premier and everybody kind of liked it. And then the next day, we're like, what were we thinking? First of all, it, it, it has, you know, communist but beyond that, it's too long for the can. And so ultimately, we ended up with uh, Pepsi Max because it was short, right? And that was great because it's the, this macho name, right? Which is what we wanted because we we're targeting men with a diet drink. And then also, if you can ring a chord of familiarity, back to the SO Exxon thing, you know, when SO was changed to Exxon, they had a visual chord of familiarity. And what by that, I don't know if you know it or recognize it, but if you look at the Exxon logo, it's in red and kind of block letters. What was the court of familiarity? It was the exit sign, right? And so this reassures people that it's something they can be familiar with. The last recommendation I have, if you're naming a, a new company, if you're a startup or whatever, my recommendation is to, if you're not sure, print up some cards. You can print them on your home computer, start passing those out. And what you'll find is people say, oh, or oh, or, or what. And the biggest, the biggest key, frankly, is if you find yourself embarrassed to pass out that card because you're not sure, you need to do more work on the name. Okay. All right, guys. So, so that, that's the naming, the naming class for today. I want to pass it on now to Ginny, who is our OG expert and jewelry. So Ginny, uh, you're up. Thank you, Brian. So last month, Mary spoke of Barbenheimer. And so today I'm going to continue the Barbie thread and talk about something that I found very curious. And that's a strategy that Mattel's CEO, Enon Kreiss, refers to as Barbie economics. So according to Mattel's CFO, Barbie will contribute more than $125 million in gross billings to the company this year as the film closes in on $1.4 billion worldwide and cash will continue to flow through to Mattel through 2024 and beyond. So yes, this is definitely a story of box office success. However, the more important story that I find is the story of business transformation. So according to the CFO, and I quote, the, the new Mattel is very different from what the company was a few short years ago. The biggest change is that we transitioned from being a toy manufacturing company into being an IP-driven, high-performing toy company. So how long does a business transformation of this magnitude take? Well, the benchmark is, is typically, you know, approximately five years. 
And Christ has been reinventing Mattel for that amount of time with a focus on leveraging and monetizing its intellectual property, a push that culminated with Barbie. So the Barbie movie is not just a one-off, but part of a holistic multi-year strategy to capture value from Mattel's intellectual property. So the film's success showcased the strength of Mattel's brands, certainly, in addition to its ability to attract talent and its substantial marketing know-how activating thousands of retailers worldwide. So if you want to hear about other things besides Barbie, well, Mattel's other IP extensions include 14 movies in development, including a Hot Wheels film with J.J. Abrams, a Matchbox Cars project with Skydance, a major Matt Mason movie with Tom Hanks, Polly Pocket, we all remember Polly Pocket, Polly Pocket by Lena Dunham starring Lily Collins, Vin Diesel with Rock'em Sock'em Robots, and Barney with Daniel, and I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, Kaluuya. So you can see that a lot of IP of Mattel is in the works for entertainment purposes. So what can we learn from this business transformation? Well, first of all, the destination of the transformation is clear and clearly and comprehensively communicated. And I want to emphasize, I, I intentionally word use the word destination and I don't use the word vision because the word vision sounds too aspirational and, and unattainable. So as an example of the communication of Mattel's change destination, I found this on, on the website in the, the who we are section of the website. And it reads very differently than a toy manufacturing statement. So I'm going to quote this who we are statement from, from Mattel's website. So, and I quote, Mattel is a leading global toy company and owner of one of the strongest portfolios of children's and family entertainment franchises in the world. We engage consumers through our portfolio of iconic brands, as well as other popular intellectual properties that we license or own in partnership with global entertainment companies. Our offerings include film and television content, gaming and digital experiences, music and live events. We operate in more than 35 locations and our products are sold in more than 150 countries in collaboration with the world's leading retail and e-commerce companies. So that is a very different statement than you would find in just a toy manufacturing companies. So you could see the wide expanse of this transformation and, and what this change destination is. So as I said, clear communication of the transformation and change destination to all stakeholders is critical. It describes what the company will look like when we reach that destination. And certainly the stakeholders are important that they know this, employees, customers, shareholders, and partners, to, to name a, a few stakeholders. So what comes to mind for, for me in, in this transformation is, is a very simple tool that I, that I want to share with you. And it's really simple. But I have to say, when I work with business leaders on transformation, they don't find this tool as simple as I think it is. But, but very simply, the tool is the, what I call the from to tool. From being where are we now and to is the 
the change destination. So the current state, future state, from two. So let's use Mattel as a case study for this tool. So, so when Mattel is talking about transformation, the from state is being a toy manufacturing company. The to state, so the future state, is being an IP-driven, high-performing toy company. So when you, when you map that out at the high level, the next step is to think about all the components that get you from the the from to the two states. So examples of these components are thinking about your products, your process, your partners, just, just to name a few. So we'll just kind of illustrate a couple of these. So if you look at the dimension of people, the current state is you're, you're typically attracting people who have manufacturing and, and perhaps retail background. But the future state is going to require the, the company to also attract people with an entertainment background. So very different kind of employees that you're, you're trying to attract into the company, but very important to kind of map that out. What's different about the people component of this? And then the obvious one is the product component. You know, the current state being the product we offer is toys. The future is entertainment. In addition to toys, just, just to kind of name a few of those changes. So you can see that that kind of the from to is basically about uh, the change destination and, and making sure you understand what that de- destination is. And then underneath that, what is changing by all those component trees I, I mentioned before. So, so as I think about Mattel and think about all the things that are happening in this transformation, I, I thought of it, it's kind of like Disney-like, but kind of in reverse. <laughs> so it kind of felt like that. And, and of course, you know, it's, it's about like, like Disney, Mattel is staying true to its iconic intellectual property. And the thing to remember is shelf life of, of intellectual property could be decades. And when you think about it, you know, Mickey is 94 years old and, and Barb, Barbie's a relative youngster at, at 64. So, so with that, I'm going to hand it over to Mary, our, our marketing guru, and she's going to talk about something that I, I know I want to hear about. And she's going to talk about diamonds. So, so over to you, Mary. Ginny, thank you. And by the way, I love Ginny's from and to, and you are right. It is, it's just seems like, oh, okay. You know, but I mean, I've seen groups try to do that for two days when you, when you lead them through that. So the good, it's a good tool. And so, yeah, thank you so much, Ginny. My curious and quirky topic this week is about a company who has sold a very well-known luxury product since 1888. <laughs> They've been around a long time. De Beers Diamonds, as Ginny said. And they taught us importance of the cut, the color, the clarity, the carrot. So they taught us how to how to evaluate diamonds. And then through their old-fashioned advertising campaigns, they advised us to spend two months pay on an engagement ring because they claim, <laughs> how else can two months salary last forever? Jeez. Okay. So now lab-grown diamonds that cost 40 to 50% less than natural diamonds are shaking up the market. Well, actually, they've been around for some time, but are gaining popularity more recently. GE actually brought more good things to life than just our light bulbs. They created the first 
proven synthetic diamond in 1954 <laughs> under a project code named Project Superpressure. And then GE continued to improve the quality and they finally figured out how to remove the yellow hue from the diamond. And that was by 1971. So if a viable diamond alternative has been around for over 50 years. Why is it just recently that De Beers has now been reacting with their price drop? So they went from $1,400 to $850 for a carat. And why are they now providing their own lab-grown diamond, which is they're calling Lightbox? So let's look at it just a little bit more here. So De Beers has enjoyed being both a market leader, which means that they lead the market with market share and a price leader, meaning that others follow them. You could be a high price or a low price, but others follow you if you're a price leader. So it must be really tough to be this uh, market owner for over a century and then to have this seemingly inferior, technology-driven, indirect competitor enter and start to shake up your market and undercut and devalue your product. And they are essentially becoming the price leader. So technology isn't the only thing at, at work here. Segmentation is always a factor with trends. And it seems as the timing of the lab-grown segmentation is working very well for them. So potentially, there are three different segments that lab-grown diamonds are appealing to. The first one is, is people that uh, want a diamond-like stone, but they want to spend more of their money on experiences versus material things. And then there's a second segment that is more concerned about the ethics and the environment regarding mining, because there's been a lot of bad press on that. And then third, there's a segment that can't afford such expenses, you know, especially in this economy. So what are De Beers' options? One is, is that they can examine their market and see if there's a, another segment that, that really appreciates the authentic and natural diamond, you know, the real deal, and are willing to still pay a premium. If so, De Beers will need to focus their effort on that segment with the traditional market and then not play that price game because they're just going to continue to devalue the high end. And then what they can also do as a second strategy is compete in that lower end um, with their lab-grown diamonds, which they have light box, as I mentioned earlier. And they can probably appeal to two of the three segments. One is, is the ones that want to spend more money on the experience. So they'll they'll like the diamond-like. And then the other one is, is the ones that can't afford it in this economy. However, the segment that I mentioned that is worried about ethics and the environment, they probably have a bigger issue with the brand. So that probably isn't a good one for Demir's to, to go after at this point. So clearly, treating different segments differently will enable De Beers to be able to be both that market leader and price leader again. And if they don't do this, they're going to pretty much just be an average. They're going to dilute. And um, we call that lukewarm tea. What that means is, is that it's not hot tea. It's not cold tea. It's lukewarm. And nobody wants to buy lukewarm anything. So what does this mean for you and your company? Three things. Do you have an indirect competitor that's on the horizon, meaning that these are companies that provide similar benefits, but they do it entirely different? And if so, how can you continue to differentiate your high-end offer and really protect your price premium? 
The second question is, is should you consider providing a low cost, we call it a fighting brand, to capture customers at that low end as kind of a safety net if that competitor starts to really, you know, if they're a cheaper competitor and their popularity starts to grow. And then the third question is, if you're a bit stuck at any stage of your life cycle, have you segmented your market recently, especially based on customers' needs, attitudes, and behaviors to drive innovation and have to think fresh about your value proposition? Think more about your diamonds next time. So now I'm going to open up the floor to, to all of our speakers, to Brian and, and Jitty. And Brian, what do you have any good questions or comments for us? Well, one comment was, you know, I don't know if you guys know what was the most considered by ad age in 1999, the most important or successful or best tagline that year. And the tagline was actually created in 1947. And the tagline is still going around. Anybody know what that would be? That, of course, is De Beers, a diamond is forever, right? And that tagline was so brilliant because of, you know, the emotional part of it. But actually, from a segmentation and a marketing standpoint, it was about creating scarcity, right? And the fact that if you keep your diamond forever, it won't come back on the market and therefore we can charge higher prices. Okay, so that's my comment about De Beers. Thank you for that. You guys have me buzzing on the Barbie thing. So I want to ask you both what you think from a political or, you know, standpoint about the movie because at the beginning of the movie, who was the the villain? The villain was the management of Mattel, right? Now that evolved, right? But I thought that was, you know, with Will Ferrell, but I thought that was such a brave and courageous thing for the management of Mattel to allow themselves to be profiled that way. But I'd love to hear your guys' comments on that. Well, I agree. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, in Mattel's transformation that, you know, it almost kind of subconsciously says, you know, we're different. We can laugh at ourselves. We're cool. We're, we're of today, even though Barbie's 64 years old and there's a lot of controversy about Barbie and, you know, and, and everything that she stands for or they want her to stand for. So it's a really kind of complex situation that I think they they did a very elegant way of, of addressing everything. So I thought I thought it was quite quite good. Yeah, Brian, I agree with you. I think that I think the, the movie would not have been as popular if they didn't allow for that kind of free press because they really did hit the minds of a lot of people. You know, when they when they said some of the things about what the Barbie doll stood for, it spoke to attitudes about some of the segments that would have just said this movie's horrible. But I think they, I mean, and they, people still did, you know, of course, in in their own way. But I think that that was brilliant. And they just, they went deep. One of the reasons it appealed to adults is, is that there were so many references to, you know, pop culture and things that if you watch movies at all, you're like, oh, they put that in there too. So I thought that they, they had some brilliant writers and you're right, Mattel, to their credit said, I I don't think they, I think they agreed up front that they weren't going to filter. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe the contract forced them into it, but, but it's, you know, it's, there's some psychological phrase, I forget what it is, but that which we re- resist gets more you know, prevalent. And, and if we give into it and sort of go with it, then we can have a transformation. And so good for them. I was also intrigued, Jenny, with what you had said about sort of the, I mean, obviously leveraging the intellectual property, you know, tied in nicely with what I was talking about is sort of ringing chords of familiarity, right? Where, I mean, it's so expensive in these days to establish a brand and to get a share of mind and so you look at what are the assets of a company, more and more, it's about the brand, right? And the brands that they have. And so I thought, I thank you for bringing that up because I had forgotten all those brands that Mattel has. Yeah. 
part of that is nostalgia, you know? So the, the parents of the children now, I, I had a Barbie and now my, my child's going to have a Barbie or I had rock and rock them, sock them robots. And how great that, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of bringing the childhood, the nostalgia into this as well. So you see a lot of, I think what you both talk about is, is a lot of those emotional attachments to these I to the IP and how those emotional attachments live on. You know, I mean, who would think that Mickey Mouse of all things would be something people would still find iconic? You know, it's, it's, it's a mouse. Judy, but you know what's interesting about that is it's really tricky because I, when I heard the Barbie movie was coming out, I thought it was a kid's movie. When you have a brand, it, it like what Brian was saying is, is stands for something in our minds. And so it's been very tricky for them to be able to, to say, oh, actually, this might not be good for kids, you know, <laughs> or young kids. And I'm wondering if that's what they're going to do with those other movies is, is you know, this is for a, more of the adult. Yeah, good point. I think what, what I found interesting about the Barbie movie is, is I really wasn't following it other than, you know, pink became the color of the year. And then you'd get little teasers coming in about Margot Robbie being in it. And of course, Kate McKinnon that we love, you know, so there was an interest. But what landed it for me was seeing articles in the New York Times times talking about it, very adult articles and very positive articles talking about the movie and and going, you know, deep into it. And I thought, you know, you would not find that typically, you know, that that kind of coverage, you know, for a kid's movie, uh, the way it was, you know, thought through in, in those articles that that's attracting a New York Times reader. You know, what segment is that? A Wall Street Journal reader. You know, you're reading about this in Fortune magazine now. You know, not not just the the economic success, but as as I, you know, as I talked about today, this is a huge from Mattel business transformation story. So there's a lot of legs to this, which I'm finding fascinating. You know, the more you uncover things about this, the more you find. So so I find that you know, really, again, curious. And I, and I love things like that. I, I love transformation. Well, let me quickly say this about, you know, obviously this, we're talking in, in some ways about equity extension, right? How far can we extend the equity of an existing brand? And you have to be obviously very careful with that, as Mary alluded to. You have to sort of, you know, you want to go someplace new, but you can't violate your original equity. So it's a it's a wonderful dance you have to play. Anyway, Jenny, you were going to ask a question. Yes. Yes, I was going to ask a question. And, you know, I love naming. I, I just am fascinated about it. I feel very strongly about it. And I'm, I'm kind of critical about it but 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 another but another x has come out i'm sure you know about is watson x from from ibm and i that actually personally appeals to me i agree the twitter x no but i the watson x i find it taking watson to a, a contemporary level so it's interesting that impact of x versus the other and i i was interested in your thoughts on that well thank you because i i obviously know about it and i mentioned i wanted to mention it when i talked and i forgot to because there were so many there were so many x's coming up but i agree with you and one of the things that you're getting at and alluding to is that when you link a name 
an established name with something that's not established, you can make it work, right? So Watson X is a good example. In the case of, just to refer back to what I talked about, Pepsi Max, in the US, Coke sort of owned the name Max, right? And so there were, they were, their trademark lawyers were really freaking out. And you say, well, you can't do Pepsi Mac. And they, 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 to their credit, they were very aggressive and very strong about it. And they said, well, as soon as we link it to Pepsi, it's not Mac. So therefore, we can get away with it, right? And, and they have done that. It's become a half a billion dollar brand around the world. And so I, you know, I, I think the, one of the principles here is that when you link a, a letter or whatever, you know, or something else to an established brand, then you can leverage the equity of that established brand. And I agree with you. I think Watson X is kind of cool. You know, what is that? You know, X marks the spot. What's inside the box? What's new? You know, it's, and obviously, Apple is, you know, taking the other letter I and just run with that, in part because naming is so frigging hard, to be honest, that if you have an established name or brand, you know, you want to leverage it as much as you can, obviously. You know, Brian, I really liked what you had. I hadn't thought about, you know, like them being potentially one of the worst brand names. But as you went through it, I'm like, yeah. And then they really did make San Francisco mad. Did you hear that they put that huge blaring light on top of one of the buildings that people couldn't sleep at night? And and at first I'm like, you know, how egotistical is he really? I mean, that is even more egotistical. But then I thought, well, you know, he certainly achieved what he was trying to. He got press, you know, whether it was bad or good, he got a lot of press very quickly for the name change. But, you know, it's, it's, I go back to this quote, obsessive personality. It can, it's the nature of that where you can become a billionaire because you are obsessed about something, but it's a, you know, it's a double-edged sword, obviously. And in this case, you know, whether it's a sword or a line of cocaine, right? It's, it's not good. A razor blade or a line of cocaine, this is not good. So it would be a wonderful time for another company to really start promoting their Twitter-like services, you know, because there's such a deficit in the market right now to, to take that space that's been vacated, basically. <laughs> yes, for those ex-Twitter people, as we say. I love that. Yes. So we really appreciate you taking uh, the time to join us today. Curious and Quirky goes live every third Friday of the month. So we'll be back October 20th with more great topics. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues. Um, we look forward to seeing you then. Thank you. Curious and Quirky is a LinkedIn live event with course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. This is a fast-paced, five-minute-per-speaker, oh yeah, take on what's hot in marketing, innovation, transformation, future of work, platform strategy, design, and agility. Brought to you by the course leaders from Caltech Executive Education.